Gospel of John, chapter 1. For those of you visiting with us this morning, we have been making our way through this uh, Gospel written by the Apostle John. We've been going verse by verse. We've been seeing and diving into all of the riches that is there for us. We have seen that John, from the very beginning of his Gospel, wants us to be struck by the glory of Christ. And we are picking up this morning in verses 35 to 51, having to do with the calling of the disciples. As we were singing this last song, I was looking over the the words and we sang, I have no longings for another, I'm satisfied in Him alone. This is what we see taking place with these disciples here this morning in the Gospel of John. So I want to pick up where we left off last week, reading at verse 35 down to verse 51. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you will see greater things than these. 
And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Would you pray with me? Father, as we see your disciples, disciples of Jesus, coming to Jesus and hearing about Jesus, Lord, it is very clear that what a disciple is, is someone who is stunned by the very person of Christ. Someone who sees in Him infinite, unimaginable, unspeakable glory. Someone who sees in Him a treasure worth leaving everything behind in order to pursue. Father, search our hearts this morning. See if if we are these kinds of disciples. Are we amazed with Christ? Is He everything to us, Lord? Search our hearts and expose any coldness towards Christ that may be there. Any hardness that may be there. The very Son of God Himself has broken forth into the world. Let us not hear these words and walk away as though everything is just as it has always been. Father, provoke us this morning to be as Your disciples were. Those who were amazed and who followed Christ. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's a truism to say that we will devote ourselves to what our hearts love the most. What a truism is. There's many isms in the world, right? This is how Webster's defines a truism. An undoubted or self-evident truth. One too obvious to mention. So to say we will devote ourselves to what our hearts love the most is a truism. It's self-evident. I shouldn't really even have to say what I just said, because it's so clear. And when I say it, I'm really not adding anything to any conversation. We know on the face of this statement that it is true. If there is something that we truly love, we will move heaven and earth to pursue it, and to have it, and to love it, and to enjoy it. We know this. This is what our regular, everyday experience is like. If there's a a favorite TV show 
that we have. It comes on Sunday nights or Monday nights, a football game, some kind of show that we like. We're going to make sure that we watch it, that we see it. We're going to rearrange our schedules. We're not going to make any plans on that night or that morning. We're going to make sure that we see this because we love this show. If there's a football game or a basketball game or some kind of sporting event that we want to go see, we're going to save up some money, we're going to buy the tickets, we're going to rearrange our schedules to go see it because our, our hearts love it. We, we love WKU football. Auburn football. We're going to rearrange everything, right? We're going to make plans. If it's a, a Saturday afternoon game, we're clearing our schedule for Saturday because we love, we love the game. If we have any kinds of goals, we're going to make sacrifices to achieve those goals. We have goals of losing weight. We're not going to eat as much food. We're going to eat different kinds of food. We're going to go to the gym. We're going to exercise. We're going to do things differently than they've been done before because there's a goal and we're trying to reach it. And we love it. That's what we want. It's our goal because we love it. That's what... We want to get to getting into college, right? We've got some people who just recently got some acceptance letters. They worked hard, studied over and over. They made sacrifices, cleared their schedules so that they could reach a certain goal because that's what their hearts love. That's what we pursue. We will devote ourselves to what we love the most. Jesus says in Matthew 6.21 that you can actually see what your heart truly desires by what you devote yourself to. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are the things that you are pursuing? What are the loves that you have? That's where your heart is. You You can judge where your heart is by external matters. Right? A lot of times we, we separate those things. What I'm doing on the outside has nothing to do with, with what's on the inside. What, that's not true, according to Jesus. We will do what our heart desires most to do, and we'll pursue it. Even if someone has a gun to your head and is telling you to do something contrary, what you love the most in that moment is your life. And you're going to do whatever you can to preserve your life. The more I've read John's Gospel, I think the more convinced I've become that John wants us to see in Jesus a treasure beyond comparison so that we will move heaven and earth to pursue Him. To find all of our joy and desires satisfied in Him. What did we sing? I'm satisfied in Him alone. No longings for another. Him alone. He is supreme. I think that's what John wants us to see. He wants us to have true life. Not a mirage. Not of pursuing things that perish. True life. 
John, as he writes this Gospel, is looking out for us. He has our interests, our best interests in mind. He's not just interested in making converts. He's not trying to reach some quota to have some list of evangelistic professions of faith. That's not his primary interest. He wants us to believe in Jesus, but his primary interest is not to make converts, to have a tally of how many. He wants us to see Christ as supremely beautiful above all. Remember what we read just a few weeks ago in the beginning of the Gospel. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. His glory. How do you say that about someone? What do you mean when you're saying, I've seen in this this man of whom there, there was no outward beauty in him, glory. How do you say that? You don't say something like that about a person unless there is something about that person that leaves you absolutely stunned. We have seen His glory. John, as much as is humanly possible through the use of words, wants us to see what He saw. He wants us to see Jesus and to say with Him, Behold! Look at Christ! He is full of glory! You cannot see anything better than this God-man Jesus of Nazareth. That's where He wants us to be with Him. John, has, John, you've seen His glory with your own eyes. I have seen His glory through your descriptions, through your Word, through the Spirit of God opening my very heart and eyes to see. You know why? You know why He wants us to get to that point? Because when you are stunned by the infinite unsurpassable, perfect, blazing glory of Christ, everything your heart desires becomes reoriented around the supreme treasure in your life. And you become what you are actually made to be. A lover of God. A follower of Christ. An image bearer of your Maker one who wants to look and see and take notes and imitate. Because who He is is who you want to be. Every page of John's Gospel is written so that our eyes might be opened to see ourselves the glory of this Christ. When we come to the end of chapter 1, We find these disciples following Jesus. What we are witnessing are people who have seen in Jesus this glory. And what they have seen in Him 
is not such that allows them to simply react with nice thoughts of admiration and then move on as though nothing significant had happened. How nice it is! How nice that this man Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How great it is to know that my sins can be forgiven in this man. I heard that there's a nice festival going on this afternoon. Now that we have this great information about Jesus, let's go to the festival. That's not how they're thinking. This is not an afterthought. It's not a a nice, quick thought that fades as quickly as the wind blows. What we are seeing in these disciples are people who are actually stunned by the glory of Christ and the festivals don't matter anymore. Jesus matters above all. What they see in Jesus prohibits them from indifference. It just doesn't allow them to reach that Conclusion, they can't, they are actually unable to react in any other way than to have Him as the center of all of their devotion. They see in Christ how truly valuable He is. And their eyes are opened to this truth because of what Jesus does to them what they see in Jesus and Him, what He is doing to them. As we move through this text, there's four things that He does to them that, that really opens their eyes to behold his, his glory. The first thing we see Him doing is, is that He spoke to their spiritual needs. He spoke to their deepest spiritual needs. Verses 35 and 37, 35 to 37, pick up where we ended last week with with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. There were were many things that John the Baptist himself was, was prepared for that he knew was coming down the pipeline, the coming of the Lord. He knew what the Lord was going to be doing. He didn't know all of the details of how this was going to be taking place, but he did have a very clear message about what the Messiah would do. And We saw last week that he was preaching a very simple yet clear message that this Jesus is the Lamb of God. The, the, the very One that was spoken of in Isaiah 53 who would give His life on behalf of His people. Would bear in His own flesh their transgressions. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Clear message. Preach that Jesus, once He saw Him, once it had been revealed that this Jesus was indeed the Son of God because God had opened up the heavens, borne witness to who Jesus was. He preached that this Jesus was the Son of God. And we saw last week that that means He is the King. Not only the King over Israel, but the King over the world. Verse 35, we see the same thing going on. He is continuing preach this same message. 
The Baptist is at this point with two of his disciples and we find him again doing the very thing he was called to do. Pointing his disciples to Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. So, so what we know from this point is that these disciples here, they have some spiritual concerns. They are fully aware that the Lord is returning. This is what John the Baptist has been preaching. And they desire to be pure. To be morally pure before Him. You cannot be in the presence of God Himself and be stained with sin. So their, their sin has to be addressed. Dealt with. They've got this spiritual concern. John the Baptist has been preparing them for it. And he points to Jesus. He essentially says, this is where, this is where your sins can be addressed, dealt with. They don't know how. They don't know how it's going to work exactly, but they know that it's Him. He is of some significance. And so what we find them doing is, is being obedient. Obedient to John the Baptist's teachings. They were not those who were abandoning John the Baptist. They were obedient to John the Baptist. He points them to Jesus. They follow after Jesus when they see Him. And then we read in verse 38, as Jesus sees them following Him, it says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? What are you seeking? When He asked them this question, they're not thinking beyond just simple curiosity. They're interested in this man, Jesus. Their teacher is pointing to this man, Jesus. But it appears that they just want to know at this point a little bit more about Him. Who are you exactly? They have questions. They haven't made any solid conclusions about Him. They're wondering about Him in very earthly ways. Say, Rabbi, Where are you staying? We just want to know where you live. We just want to have some access in case we have more questions. Where are you staying? But Jesus, Jesus is not speaking to their earthly concerns at this point. Jesus is speaking to them and questioning them on a deeper spiritual level that they have not yet discerned. Jesus does this all throughout the Gospel of John. We find Him doing this chapter after chapter. This is one of the themes that just keeps getting brought out in John's Gospel over and over is that Jesus wants to speak to us about eternal, weighty, heavenly truths about who He is. And and we, and they, as human beings, we're on this earthly plane. He's here, and we're here. And He's trying to bring us where he is. So John chapter 2, for example, Jesus is in the temple, the cleansing of the temple. There's money changers. They've, they've essentially profaned the temple of God, and we see Jesus overturning the tables. This is what we read in John chapter 2, verse, verse 19 and following. 
Jesus answered them after they had asked Him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answers them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up on three days? The Jews are right here. They're on earthly plane. They're just looking at what's in front of them and what they've known for a very long time. Jesus is speaking about eternal, heavenly realities. Destroy this temple. And then John explains, Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this on two different levels. Very next chapter in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him. Nicodemus, apparently a well known teacher of Israel. He should be very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and of who the Messiah was and what he was going to do. And we find Nicodemus coming to Jesus, and he doesn't go beyond recognizing that Jesus is just a rabbi, just like himself, just a teacher. He's certainly doing some amazing things, but rabbi is the way he addresses Him very earthly way. As we see Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is wondering, how are you doing all of these signs? And Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Where did that come from? He's on two, they're on two different levels. Nicodemus still doesn't understand, right? So Jesus then has to explain even further. He says that unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is still thinking very, very earthly. He says, well, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to crawl back in your mother's womb? How are you born again, Jesus? Jesus is speaking about a rebirth spiritually, about the work of the Spirit of God. We cannot be who we were born at first order to see the light of the kingdom of God. So this is is what we find Jesus doing all throughout the gospel. And this is what he is doing with the disciples as well when he asks them, what are you seeking? He's asking them a spiritual question because he knows that their deepest desire is to have their sins taken away. This is why they've been following John the Baptist. We read in verse 39 of chapter 1, After Jesus asked, what are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, they just address him as just any other man, teacher, where are you staying? And he says to them, come, you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. It was about four o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, late. They're going to stay with him. They spend the entire evening with him. And then through spending that time with Him, they reach the conclusion that their spiritual needs have been met because their conclusion about Jesus changes. And you can see it. They first address Him as rabbi, and then by the time you get down to verse 41, they are saying, we found the Messiah! They have had some amazing conversations with Jesus, and Jesus has been speaking directly to their deepest needs. They found the Messiah. As we see Andrew that finds his brother Peter and says, we found Him. We found Him. You can hear the giddiness. We found the Messiah. 
The one whom we've been waiting for all this time. We found Him. Giddiness, joy, amazement, happiness. They found, not just a man, they found treasure. Treasure. Friends, when you think of Christ, do you think of Him in that way? Is there a giddiness there? A real joy. I've got the Messiah. I know Christ. He's everything to me. I want to tell others about Him. Come and see. If if you don't want Him, that's fine, but I'll take Him. Giddiness. Joy. Is Christ that to you? Have you found in Christ the greatest treasure? One who is worthy of all devotion, all of your time, all of your energy. These disciples saw in Jesus an infinitely worthy treasure because He was speaking to them of their most profound spiritual needs and they followed Him. If if we say that our most deep spiritual needs have been met in Jesus, do we have that kind of joy? The second thing we see is that the disciples saw His glory because He changed their identity. Or better, He had the authority to change their identity. It was made known. We see this especially played out in Jesus giving Peter a new name in verse 42. Verse 41, Andrew goes, he gets his brother Simon, and he tells him, we have found the Messiah. Simon is, at this point, clearly ready to embrace this as true. Perhaps because it's coming from his brother. His brother has uh, a reputation in his own house for speaking truth. Simon goes with his brother to meet the Messiah. So Simon's prepared, right? He's prepared to have an encounter with a very significant figure, especially in Jewish life, the Messiah. And when he gets to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas. Simon, at this point, has no clue what he will become. He has no idea about what the future holds. He has no idea that he is going to play a role of being one of the most significant apostles out of them all. That he is going to be the rock. That he is going to be a foundation stone upon which the entire church is built. He has no idea about what is to come. And yet Jesus says, this is who you will be. You will be a rock. You will be a rock. That's a total identity change. Goes from being a fisherman, no reputation, to a rock of the very body of Christ. He's got no idea. Jesus has the authority and power to change our identities and to make us new people designed to bring glory to God. What Jesus did with Simon, He does for all people. He does for all of His people. We see in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamum. 
He's calling them to repent. And he says to them, to the one who conquers, that doesn't mean conquers in their own strength, by their own power, their own will. They conquer in the power and the strength of God. They have the Spirit of God within them. They are relying upon His Word. They are going to conquer sin and death through Christ. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone. No one knows except the one who receives it. Friends, just as Simon's entire identity was changed, who he was, the kind of life he lived, the way he oriented his day-to-day experiences, just as that was changed by Christ, so also does Jesus change our identities. Through Jesus, we are no longer the same people. If our desires are the same pre-conversion as they are now, now as they were then, how can we say we've actually come to know Christ? We see in the disciples a total change reorienting their life around this man. Because that's what Jesus does. It's not an accident that when the Bible speaks about a new birth or a renewal, it uses all of this imagery of a new heart, of being sprinkled clean with water, of having your sins that were as crimson become white as snow. These, these are total opposites. It's no coincidence. And it's no coincidence because that is what Jesus does to His disciples. It changes who they are. The third thing we see Jesus doing to these disciples so that they might see His glory is that He revealed His omniscient knowledge of them. He revealed His omniscient knowledge. What I mean by that is that He revealed to them the very reality that He knows every single thing about them. He knows everything they have ever done, everything they ever will do, everything they have thought, everything they will think. Because He's God. He can peer and does peer into the depths of our hearts. That is what I mean by His omniscient Knowledge, And He reveals this to them. And in that, they see His glory. In verses 43-48, to John turns his attention to Jesus' calling of Philip and Nathanael. Nathanael is probably Bartholomew in the other Gospels, given the name Nathanael here. So we see Jesus going into Galilee, and He calls Philip to follow Him. And then we find Philip going and finding Nathanael, and he says to him the very same thing in the very same manner that Andrew said to Simon. We have found him. We have found the Messiah. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's just as giddy. He's just as full of joy. And he's saying, Nathanael, you have to come and See, And so he exhorts Nathaniel, Nathaniel, come with me. Look, find who the Messiah is. 
it says, he's, of, he's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And then we read in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, or probably more accurately, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? How do you know me? The kind of knowledge Jesus has of Nathanael is knowledge of his character. When he says, truly, an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no guile, certainly he is saying that Nathanael does not have a reputation for being a liar. But that's really not the main emphasis there. The main emphasis is on the fact that Nathanael is the kind of person that speaks his mind. He speaks truthfully. And I mean, we see this taking place, right? Philip says, we've, we've found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael responds, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. We understand that. Nazareth is some backwoods place. Nobody, nobody likes no reputation. It's like Pelham, Alabama. The only thing good that came out of Pelham was my wife. We understand that. We understand that, right? There are places that have reputations for being of no reputation at all. And the Messiah, the Christ, is coming from that place Nathaniel speaks his mind. Jesus knows that Nathaniel is the kind of person that doesn't hold back speaking his mind. That's, that's a character trait. And Nathaniel picks up on that assessment. And he's confused. He's confused that Jesus could know the kind of person he is without ever having spoke with him. How do you know me? Then in verse 48, Jesus reveals that he not only knows his character, but he knows everything he does. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. How could he have known that he was under the fig tree? It's not as though he was looking at him from a distance. Nathanael clearly understood what he meant by that. I was in a place where no one else knew where I was. How do you know that I was under that fig tree? That's what Jesus reveals to him. His intimate, deep, omniscient knowledge. He knows who Nathaniel is. He knows everything he does. His knowledge of Nathaniel encompassed everything he was and everything he did. And his knowledge of us is the very same. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your pains. He knows your sufferings. He knows your feelings. He knows your thoughts. He knows your hypocrisies. There's no faking Christianity in Christ. No faking Christianity. We might be able to fake it with others. We can put on a really good show. I said to Ben this morning, we can speak Christianese really good. 
We might tout to others our membership. I'm so-and-so. I've been a member at this church for the last 50 years. Therefore, by definition, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus, right? Wrong. Completely wrong. We can say the right things. I was with some people this, this past week. Unbelievers. Clearly battling some really dark demons. Shared a little of my testimony with them. They knew I was a pastor here. This, this happens pretty often, but as soon as they, they realized who I was, I was a pastor, they said, yeah, we, we love the Bible. We love going to a church that preaches the Bible. I mean, that's, that's what you say when you're talking to a, a, a Christian or a pastor, right? I, I love a real good Bible study, though I haven't been to one in like three years. We can speak the right language, especially in the culture that we live in now. Cultural Christianity. You're not going to be able to do that for long. Cultural Christianity is dying, and good riddance to it. I hope it's crucified and never gets raised from the dead again. We can fake Christianity to others. You can't fake Christianity with Christ. You can't fake it. He knows everything. And He knows your hypocrisies. When Nathaniel realized that the man he was speaking to was omniscient and knew him better than he knew himself, Nathaniel didn't become paralyzed with fear. He, just like Andrew, just like Philip, was amazed. You know the depths of my soul. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. That knowledge that Jesus knew Him intimately freed Him. Because... I don't have to cover things up anymore. Christ knows me deeply. Jesus' glory was seen and Nathaniel believed. The fourth thing that Jesus did to reveal His glory to these disciples was to promise them that they will see even greater things than what they've already seen and what they've already experienced. Look at verses 50 to 51. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now at at this point, he's actually speaking to multiple disciples because the you there is plural. He's turning his attention. Truly, truly, I say to you disciples, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this language, angels ascending and descending, is very specific language. We just read Genesis 28. That's where your mind should be. Jesus 
And these Jewish disciples, familiar with the Old Testament, familiar with their patriarch, Jacob would have understood this, that Jesus is alluding to the story of Jacob and the latter in Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, Jacob, the patriarch of all the Israelites, has a dream. And in this dream, he he sees a ladder stretched all the way into heaven. And on this ladder, he sees angels ascending and descending, not just on the ladder, but on him. He's, he's looking into heaven, he's seeing this ladder, and he looks above himself, and he sees these angels ascending and descending. And at the very top, in the heavens, there is God. He sees the revelation. And as he sees the Lord standing above him, the Lord then speaks to him and promises him that his offspring will inherit the promised land, that they will multiply, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through them, and that the Lord would be with them always. The Lord in that moment was confirming to Jacob the covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac. And he was confirming that he would play, Jacob would play a very unique role in God's plan to save and bless not just his offspring, but all of the nations. Everyone. This image of angels ascending and descending on him was a vision that symbolized and confirmed God's unique favor on him, and it signified that the revelation of God's saving works in the world would come through this man, through Jacob. God's salvation through this man. Jesus is saying to the disciples, you will see God doing this on me. That's what you'll see. You will see His covenants confirmed in me. You will see His salvation revealed through Me. You will see heaven itself opened at My command. But notice, notice that these greater things Jesus references, these are not things that are greater than Himself. It's Him. You will see these greater things. And what is it? Angels of heaven ascending and descending on Me. You will see more of Me. You will get more of My glory. Who I am. The authority I have. The power I have. You will see it. Your eyes, though they see very dimly now will be opened and My light of glory will be, will be clearly seen. You will have no questions. You will get more of Me. I am the greater thing. More of Him is what is promised. Not the benefits of Him. The benefits are great. I love being a Christian because the benefits are great. You get forgiveness of sins. You get the promise of being an heir to the kingdom of God. The promise of a new identity, of a total transformation. The benefits are great. Those are secondary though. The promise of heaven, that is great. But we have missed the Gospel completely if our greatest hope is just heaven because our family members and friends are in heaven. We've missed it. 
The glory of heaven is not because people we know are there. The glory of heaven is that Jesus is there. We get Him. More of Him. More of His presence. That, my friends, is what is promised. That is what a disciple wants more of. A disciple is one who is parched and hungry until his thirst and hunger is satisfied in Christ. Nothing else, nothing else can bring that satisfaction. Friends, this is what He also offers you. More of Himself. That's what growing in Christ is about. It's it's receiving more of Him. It's growing in a deeper and intimate knowledge of Him. Fellowship with Him. The Apostle Paul, in, in two places in particular, but all throughout his letters, makes this very clear. For example, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, we've got this Galatian church who has succumbed to a great heresy. They're not a healthy church. Paul is in anguish over their current state. He says, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's that's what happens as we grow in, in our faith. Christ is formed within us. We are transformed into who He is. We want more of Him. That was the issue with the Galatians. They had missed Him completely. I'm in anguish till Christ be formed in you. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is praying for the Colossians and he prays that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. That's Paul's desire for the church. Is that you might know Jesus more. You might desire Him more. And the more you hunger and the more you thirst for Him, the more that hunger and thirst will be satisfied. Because it is an eternal fountain of glory. Increase in the knowledge of God, he prays for just as Jesus offered Himself to the disciples, Christ offers Himself to you. The question is, friends, is that what you want? You have to ask yourself that. Is, is Jesus really who I am pursuing? Is He my desire? Is my life revolving around Christ? Is my schedule revolving around Christ? Can I actually go weeks on end without having His Word within me? I mean, we know from the New Testament, right? That we are fed by His Word. That... that Word is the very means by which we grow in holiness. 
very means by which we are satisfied. So without the Word, we are like a people who have not ate any food for months. And what kind of strength is that kind of person going to have? No strength at all. No strength at all. God has given us very simple means. Here's the end goal. Image of Christ. You be an image bearer. You find your joy in God just as Jesus found His joy in doing the will of the Father. Well, how do you get to that point? How do we get there? You don't get there from just some magical experience that randomly happens one day. You don't get there from hearing one sermon and being zapped with a new heart. You get there through following the regular ordained means of God. His Word. His prayer. I was reading in Romans the other day and Paul was, Paul was saying that he was, he was so glad that the Romans had become obedient from the heart because they had been committed to the standard of teaching. Obedient from the heart. Sometimes, sometimes we think that discipleship is just a matter of being busy. If we've got more events, we've got more activities that we can do, if we can just busy ourselves, that's a, that's a measure of health. Wrong. It's not. Obedience without a commitment of the heart is heresy. You will go to hell with a lost heart. The obedience that God desires is an obedience from the heart. And the only way the heart is actually affected and penetrated is from the standard of teaching to which you are committed. You've got to be in the Word. That is your food. That is your life. That is the business of the church. It's not all of the events that we could put on. It's not all of the activities. It is committing ourselves to the very Gospel of Christ because it was that Gospel that made you alive. If you have really trusted in Christ, it was the Gospel that caused you to be born again. And it is nothing more than the Gospel that will make your heart love Christ so that obedience is not a matter of drudgery. Obedience is not a, a burden that you have to carry on your back and check off all of the things you do throughout the week. Obedience is something you love. I've said it before. I love the church. Not because I'm supposed to. I love the church because it's the body of Christ. This is the place the Lord works. But He doesn't work in any magical means apart from what He's given us. His Word. Friends, you have to ask yourself, is Jesus who I really want? Is He who I'm pursuing? Is the Word what I am thirsting for? This is what we see taking place with the disciples. They see Christ and in Him is life. Friends, I, my prayer, my, I have, I've been burdened. 
my only desire. My only desire is what Paul anguished over. Christ be formed in you. And all the other things that try and take us away from what we were made for, just lose, lose all of their glory in the presence of Jesus. That's what should happen. And it happens, friends, just by committing ourselves to the Word. Let's do that. Let's, let's do that. Do not go another day as things have been. Make today the day you are renewed. The day that Christ becomes everything to you. Would you pray with me?